You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. This is the Maybe it's not necessary. <laughs> the, the biggest crisis of our time, I think, possibly, is a crisis of identity. Okay? Many of our issues that we're having in society right now, many of the issues we struggle with ourselves, are rooted in a crisis of identity. How we see the world, how we carry ourselves, our, our sense of security or insecurity, our dispositions, our fears, and our preferences are all rooted in our sense of identity. Even our beliefs, even our actions that help work from those beliefs are all fed by and flow from identity. Who am I? Like fundamentally, who am I? The pastor? Yeah, but not for long. I'm, I'm saying backwards, not forwards, we'll learn how it should A husband? Yeah, but only for 15 years, give or take. Sorry, Jess. I think it's, is it 15? I think I should just stop right now. Short? Is that who I am? Uh, some of you might define me that way. It's fundamentally true, but it's not fundamentally important. Am I funny? Well, that's not important at all, and some of you may disagree with me. Who am I? Fundamentally, first of all, who am I? I'm a human. Might surprise you, but that's true. I'm a human, but here's the thing I am a son. And exactly the same as every single one of you in here, without exception, I am the product of parenting, biological, physical parenting. Whether that was present or absent, whether it was good or bad, the story is the same. You each have a mother and a father. And, and the thing is, I have character traits that are genetically like imputed into me. I can't do much about them. They are the result of the hand-me-downs of DNA that my parents have given me. But there are also learned traits, things that I've picked up with cognitive years, where, where we learn how to be in the world, where we learn how to interact socially. So some of these things are just there, and other things come. And, and I, like some of you in this room, also had a step-parent. And you see, nothing genetic came to me inherently from that step-parent. But I still learn things. There are still parts of my character that have been formed and shaped by actually a few step-parents along the way. I'm the product of parenting the same as all of you. Influential parenting doesn't have to be biological. And actually, with my stepfather, 
Most of the traits I learned at the beginning were bad. The fear and anxiety. Deceit. How to protect your own interests. Things like that. But all shaping you. And you know, some things are malleable, some things can be reshaped, some, some things can be unlearned, some things can be worked through, other things are just going to be part of my character, part of my genetic makeup. Okay? Park out there for a minute, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But just remember, we are in a series called Church Forward, and it's really around Ephesians 6. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to change pace a little bit. We're going to start looking at the armory that God has given us in order to fight the fight that He's called us to and defend ourselves at the same time. So we're going to look at each of those and we'll be glad to know it's not just going to be me doing that, but Andrew, hopefully Ian and uh, Margaret will be joining me in that as well in teaching how we apply the armor. But right now, this is the last one of those fiery darts that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, and the enemy has been flinging our way. And those fiery darts that we've looked at, never more, but a fear, doubt, indifference, weariness, and today, pride. And the thing I want to put to you this morning is actually pride is not a fiery dart. I want to confuse you, but it's actually the target of the fiery dart. Because as we've said in previous weeks, Satan knows exactly how to get you. Exactly. You are known to him, to his forces, and they know how to discourage you, how to tie you up, how to hold you down, how to ruin your witness. And pride is a thing that you can't and manipulate, but it's there already. We all have the capacity and the propensity for pride. Now, you might disagree with me. <laughs> I would say that might be pride. It's built into the fabric. It's as if it's built into the fabric of humans, you know? But you've got to ask that question, where did that come from? Genetic? Biological? Stepfather. And there can be positive connotations with pride, okay? Let me just put this out there as well. Because I can say, I'm proud of you, church, for your generosity. I'm not being simply prideful about that, I'm just saying, guys, well done, good job, I'm proud of you. I'm glad to be counted in your number because you are generous. Okay, so it's good. But pride generally seems a bad thing, isn't it? Uh, it can be multifaceted, it can be about status, it can be about race. It can be about social group or tribe, is the modern way of saying social group. Skills, gifts, usefulness, like looks, goodness, knowledge, wisdom, religious practice even can be a source of pride. Doctrine can be a source of pride. Attendance can be a source of pride. You know, we might end up before God and say, I never missed a service. In 50 years, I went morning and evening, Wednesday night, I went to everything. Pride is essentially, though, selfish and self-absorbed, and it always puts itself first. C.S. Lewis says that pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. 
That's pride. We see that picture throughout Scripture. You look at Cain and Abel. Cain wanted more of God's attention, more of God's approval. What about the tensions between Saul and David? More popularity, more influence. Saul became jealous, that was pride. What about the Pharisees and how they wrestled with Jesus? They wanted more authority and power than they saw in him. Pride. But sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it may grab you where you least expect it. It's not just about having an overinflated opinion of yourself. It can also be prideful to have an underinflated opinion of yourself. Like thinking too much of yourself is as bad as thinking too little of yourself. And that's Tim Keller, the pastor Tim Keller that said that, it's not me. Look, take Simon for example, okay? There he is. He's a great musician. Okay? He's got a great voice. He's uh, kind of handsome, like a wisdom. Okay? With maybe it's a little jack, you know. There's a lot I can be jealous about about this guy. Okay? It would be just as simply prideful for me to be jealous of or threatened by his gifts as it would be to pridefully think that I'm better than he is. Do you see that? Like, I can be over here playing thinking, oh, way better than you, Simon. <laughs> or, just as bad, I can be over here playing going, oh, I'm rubbish, I shouldn't be even on this platform next to you. Just both pride, because they're both self-focused. It's just as prideful to beat myself up as to beat Simon up. Not that I have a living chance. Maybe. Kick him in the kneecaps. The Keller concludes that true humility, and humility is like an anti-venom to pride, inject your arm with it, it's worthwhile. But true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You see the difference? It's so important. If you can grasp that, you will be free. Your life will be radically different. Insecurity is a product of pride. If people don't affirm you, or don't affirm your narrative that you're trying to get them to believe, if, if people don't believe your truth, your definition of yourself, you know, pride is present, it's pervasive, it's competitive, it's often hidden, and also pride is dangerously destructive. Listen to Proverbs 16 to 18, it says, pride goes before destruction. You know this, don't you? People misquote this, they say pride goes before a fall. No, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, because it is the underlying cause of most of our sin. Like I read a blog that references a sermon by a 17th century Puritan called Richard May. Okay, cool name, Richard May. He says, it is a big belly sin. Most of the sins that are in the world are the offspring and issue of pride. So we can acknowledge together that pride is serious, right? It's a bad deal. But in the blog, this guy, a couple Joe Thorne, who's, who's quoting uh, Richard Mayo, summarizes some of these sins. I'm not going to all of them, but a couple. Covetousness. Because it's believing that you deserve.
deserve more, something more than other people. Covetousness. Ungodly ambition because you're the most qualified person in the room as you see it, and the idea of someone else being better than you is abhorrent to you. Boasting. Everyone should know who I am and what I've done. It's again rooted in pride. Unthankfulness because you deserve all the good things that you get. It's my right. Selfishness because you believe others don't deserve all the good things they seem to get. Judgmental attitude, believing, and this is a big one, believing that the errors of other people are bigger than my own. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said, come on, take a brand out of your eye before you start judging the speck in another's. And then gossip. <laughs> we don't have any problems there, do we? Because, you know, we're we we're the one church in the world Never, never, never says anything. Like, look, I'm telling you, this is just for prayer. And <laughs> Richard Mayo says, the proud endeavour to build their own praise upon the ruins of others' reputation. Just this week I've seen that happen in a devastating way in the church. Church fathers like Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and a bunch of others all consider that pride is the root essence of sin. Let they also maintain that pride was present around and responsible for the fall of mankind and the fall of angels. Okay? So they're saying this is a big deal. Pride not only comes before a fall, pride becomes, uh, comes before the fall. It's the root. And, and really, this is where I'm going to connect it back to what I said at the very beginning about my parents. There's genetic parents versus the step parent. Just go back to the garden. We've done this almost every week. You know, we're made in God's image. Humanity made in God's image. Our vocation, as Anthony Wright puts it, is to be bearers of his image to the rest of creation. That's our job. To sing his praise, to tell with our lips what the stars can only do by sparkling. Let they silently witness to the King of Glory, we tell and we show in our characters. It, Genesis 1 26 27, let them make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all wild animals. And he goes on, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He wants to emphasize and underline this in our hearts, in the image of God. He created a male and female. Now that's really significant in this day and age. He created them. I mean, do you see? The image we were created in is the true identity that Father God intended for humanity. God, as an original parent, creates humanity in his own DNA, bearing characteristics and traits of himself. And no wonder, therefore, that God self-identifies as Father God. Now, God's the only person in all of creation to get to say what gender he is. And he says, I'm Father God. But a mysterious other comes along, present in the garden, 
and assumes the role of teacher, instructs and invests his own traits, becomes a non-biological, kind of evil step-parent. You know what I'm talking about. The snake in the garden is the devil, is Satan himself who is corrupting mankind and actually investing his own wicked traits into humanity through sin so that the image of God that was created in chapter 1 of Genesis by chapter 3 is corrupted and polluted so that when Seth is born, he's not born, it doesn't say he's born in God's image, it says he's born in Adam's image. Adam's image is now corrupted, carrying his sin with it. And so we see the progression that comes all the way through the generations to you, to me. It's no wonder that Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And he tells the proudly religious Pharisees that Satan is their father. That's pretty harsh. It says, John 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Satan is like the stepfather of the world. Those not being parented currently by the father of life are being parented by the father of lies. Who's your parent? The world rejected God and embraced the charlatan. Fraud. So did you and I, until we were freed, rescued from the scales of culture from our eyes by the wonderful, merciful, grace-filled gift of the Holy Spirit through Christ Jesus and His sacrifice. You know, the true vocation was polluted, it lost, the image corrupted, being refashioned in any ways that seemed right and wise to us. Passed down from generation to generation. How's this about pride? But Satan's primary characteristic was pride. It's what got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. It was the thing that caused his fall and subsequently the fall. Okay? Because he wanted to be greater than Father God. And he sought to find a way to do it. I'm going to jump forward a little Pride is about identity. Think about all the prideful ways. It all roots back to what we feel about ourselves, our rights, how people should respect us, treat us, where we should be in life, what our status should be. It all goes back to pride. Pride is about identity. This is the core of the message, and I'll end it. It's pretty quick. Look, we were made to be image bearers of God, but we've been convinced and determined to scratch out his image from ourselves and carve ourselves into a new image of our own, our preferred image. That is idolatry in the rawest possible terms. What is idolatry? It's replacing God with something else, replacing his image with another type of image. And it doesn't have to be out of stone and wood. We make idols out of ourselves when we scratch his image out of ourselves and we shape ourselves as the object of our own worship. It's actually worse than making an idol out of wood or stone because wood or stone was never created to bear the image of God. 
just point to his glory, that's all it does. You were made to bear his image, and therefore when we reshape ourselves, that is so much worse than the making a Buddha out of this stuff. Yes, so often we see the trashing of the very thing that God himself created in his image, our original identity. We're living in a time, right, where identity is fluid. You've probably heard that term. It's being redefined, it's being challenged, where we are encouraged to rewrite our own identity. You can even change your pronouns. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And I want to say this gently because we should come to people who are struggling with issues of identity around their gender or their sexuality. We should come to them and how Jesus would, with grace, with compassion, with great love that will not be tarnished by our own pride. But we also need to speak the truth in love. You know, there's a reason why the main like event in the year for the LGBTQ movement is called Pride. It's devastatingly accurate. They couldn't have named it better or worse, depending on which way you look at it. I am not bashing that then. Because we've all had the same pollution. It just works its way out in different ways in our lives. And all of us need rescue. All of us need salvation. All of us need the grace and the mercy of a Savior. The, the, the modern political line is that we will ascend above the outdated, bigoted, restrictive God of the Bible. Whose voice do you hear? In that. I'm going to jump right to the end because there is a way that we can go back. There is a way to turn the tide. A creative identity is so badly corrupted by the fall that no great flood could wash it away. No law written on tablets of stone could keep us on a straight line. No number of judges or human kings through the ages could rule the land in a way that would lead us back to the true identity. No amount of blood of animals could cover up or pay for what has been corrupted. No exile could purge it from us. We need something entirely different to deal with the problem. We need a way back. We need a saviour. We need Jesus. He's not just made in the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. You see the distinction. We're made in God's image. Jesus is his image. The last word of John 1, who was there in the genesis of all things, who was with God and was God, and yet didn't consider that deity, that, that splendor, something to be grasped. Jesus came. The one who can exalt himself above all comes in humility, not to, serve, to be served, but to serve. Clothed himself in flesh to be the perfect second Adam, and this time, not to screw it up. 
to restore the image of God through a new and living way. How great is this news? Living out the original image intention for and the vocation of humankind with perfect precision and obedience to Father God on our behalf, creating a new type of humanity, not a harsh version, but a brand new creation. Brand new. Simon, come on, I'm going to be back on up here. But you don't need to rewrite your own identity. Because let me tell you, whatever you can write, your greatest imagination, your wildest dreams, you will never write a better identity for yourself than Father God has written for you. You will never, because you cannot even put into words how great and how marvelous and how splendid and how magnificent God is, and He's made you to carry His image. What could you possibly come up with that's better? What could I possibly come up with that's better? We are born again. We've been newly restored to a perfect identity. And if you don't know Jesus, if you're not yet born again, you can be right here, right now. You can take off the clothes of, of the, the polluted version of our identity and you can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This morning, brand new creation. You don't need to fight to show the world how valuable or wonderful you are. You already have value intrinsically, inherently valuable, fundamentally, fearfully and wonderfully made. That is you. Who am I? I was born in Berkman. My name was changed to Bellingham. My name was then changed to Tirad. It could have been changed to Button and it could have been changed to Bevan as well. My mum was like, Henry VIII. It's on camera. <laughs> Only one of those surnames is mine. Truly. Only one of those DNA strands belongs to me. Who am I? I'm a child of God. Amen.